Section 12 of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott First Part Elements of Pure Practical Reason Book 2 Dialectic of Pure Practical Reason Chapter 2 Of the Dialectic of Pure Reason in Defining the Conception of the Summum Bonum This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. E. Whitcower. The conception of the summum itself contains an ambiguity which might occasion needless disputes if we did not attend to it. The summum may mean either the supreme, supremum, or the perfect, consumatum. The former is that condition which is itself unconditioned, that is, is not subordinate to any other, originarium. The second is that whole which is not a part of a greater whole of the same kind, perfectissimum. It has been shown in the analytic that virtue, as worthiness to be happy, is the supreme condition of all that can appear to us desirable, and consequently of all our pursuit of happiness, and is therefore the supreme good. But it does not follow that it is the whole and perfect good as the object of the desires of rational finite beings. For this requires happiness also, and that not merely in the partial eyes of the person who makes himself an end, but even in the judgment of an impartial reason, which regards persons in general as ends in themselves. For to need happiness, to deserve it, and yet at the same time not to participate in it, cannot be consistent with the perfect volition of a rational being possessed at the same time of all power, if, for the sake of experiment, we conceive such a being. Now, inasmuch as virtue and happiness together constitute the possession of the summum bonum in a person, and the distribution of happiness in exact proportion to morality, which is the worth of the person, and his worthiness to be happy, constitutes the summum bonum of a possible world, hence this summum bonum expresses the whole, the perfect good, in which, however, Virtue as the condition is always the supreme good, since it has no condition above it, whereas happiness, while it is pleasant to the possessor of it, is not of itself absolutely and in all respects good, but always presupposes morally right behavior as its condition. When two elements are necessarily united in one concept, they must be connected as reason and consequence, and this either so that their unity is considered as analytical, logical connection, or as synthetical, real connection, the former following the law of identity, the latter that of causality. The connection of virtue and happiness may therefore be understood in two ways, either the endeavor to be virtuous and the rational pursuit of happiness are not two distinct actions, but absolutely identical, 
in which case no maxim need be made the principle of the former other than what serves for the latter, or the connection consists in this, that virtue produces happiness as something distinct from the consciousness of virtue, as a cause produces an effect. The ancient Greek schools were, properly speaking, only two, and in determining the conception of the summum bonum, these followed, in fact, one and the same method, inasmuch as they did not allow virtue and happiness to be regarded as two distinct elements of the summum bonum, and consequently sought the unity of the principle by the rule of identity. But they differed as to which of the two was to be taken as the fundamental notion. The Epicurean said, quote, To be conscious that one's maxims lead to happiness is virtue. Unquote. The Stoic said, quote, To be conscious of one's virtue is happiness. Unquote. With the former, prudence was equivalent to morality. With the latter, who chose a higher designation for virtue, morality alone was true wisdom. While we must admire the men who in such early times tried all imaginable ways of extending the domain of philosophy, we must at the same time lament that their acuteness was unfortunately misapplied in trying to trace out identity between two extremely heterogeneous notions, those of happiness and virtue. But it agrees with the dialectical spirit of their times, and subtle minds are even now sometimes misled in the same way, to get rid of irreconcilable differences in principle by seeking to change them into a mere contest about words, and thus apparently working out the identity of the notion under different names. And this usually occurs in cases where the combination of heterogeneous principles lies so deep or so high or would require so complete a transformation of the doctrines assumed in the rest of the philosophical system, that men are afraid to penetrate deeply into the real difference, and prefer treating it as a difference in questions of form. While both schools sought to trace out the identity of the practical principles of virtue and happiness, they were not agreed as to the way in which they tried to force this identity, but were separated infinitely from one another, the one placing its principle on the side of sense, the other on that of reason, the one in the consciousness of sensible wants, the other in the independence of practical reason on all sensible grounds of determination. According to the Epicurean, the notion of virtue was already involved in the maxim to promote one's own happiness. According to the Stoics, on the other hand, the feeling of happiness was already contained in the consciousness of virtue. Now, whatever is contained in another notion is identical with part of the containing notion, but not with the whole. And moreover, two wholes may be specifically distinct, although they consist of the same parts. Namely, if the parts are united into a whole in totally different ways. The Stoic maintained that virtue was the whole summum bonum, and happiness only the consciousness of possessing it, as making part of the state of the subject. The Epicurean maintained that happiness was the whole summum bonum, and virtue only the form of the maxim for its pursuit, namely, 
the rational use of the means for attaining it. Now it is clear from the analytic that the maxims of virtue and those of private happiness are quite heterogeneous as to their supreme practical principle, and although they belong to one summum bonum, which together they make possible, yet they are so far from coinciding that they restrict and check one another very much in the same subject. Thus the question, how is the summum bonum practically possible, still remains an unsolved problem, notwithstanding all the attempts at coalition that have hitherto been made. The analytic has, however, shown what it is that makes the problem difficult to solve, namely, that happiness and morality are two specifically distinct elements of the summum bonum, and, therefore, their combination cannot be analytically cognized, as if the man that seeks his own happiness should find, by mere analysis of his conception, that in so acting he is virtuous, or, as if the man that follows virtue should, in the consciousness of such conduct, find that he is already happy ipso facto, but must be a synthesis of concepts. Now, since this combination is recognized as a priori, and therefore as practically necessary, and consequently not as derived from experience, so that the possibility of the summum bonum does not rest on any empirical principle, it follows that the deduction, legitimation, of this concept must be transcendental. It is a priori morally necessary to produce the summum bonum by freedom of the will. Therefore, the condition of its possibility must rest solely on a priori principles of cognition. Subsection 1. The Antinomy of Practical Reason In the summum bonum which is practical for us, that is, to be realized by our will, virtue and happiness are thought as necessarily combined, so that the one cannot be assumed by pure practical reason without the other also being attached to it. Now this combination, like every other, is either analytical or synthetical. It has been shown that it cannot be analytical. It must then be synthetical, and, more particularly, must be conceived as the connection of cause and effect, since it concerns a practical good, that is, one that is possible by means of action. Consequently, either the desire of happiness must be the motive to maxims of virtue, or the maxim of virtue must be the efficient cause of happiness. The first is absolutely impossible, because, as was proved in the analytic, maxims which place the determining principle of the will in the desire of personal happiness are not moral at all, and no virtue can be founded on them. But the second is also impossible, because the practical connection of causes and effects in the world, as the result of the determination of the will, does not depend upon the moral dispositions of the will, but on the knowledge of the laws of nature and the physical power to use them for one's purposes. Consequently, 
we cannot expect in the world, by the most punctilious observance of the moral laws, any necessary connection of happiness with virtue adequate to the summum bonum. Now, as the promotion of this summum bonum, the conception of which contains this connection, is a priori a necessary object of our will, and inseparably attached to the moral law, the impossibility of the former must prove the falsity of the latter. If, then, the supreme good is not possible by practical rules, then the moral law also, which commands us to promote it, is directed to vain imaginary ends, and must, consequently, be false. End of section 12